So tonight we would pick up where we left off, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we'll begin from verse 15. Our co-host is Golda. Um, can you help us read from verse 15 to verse 21? Okay, 15 to 21. See then as you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And be not, be not, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to the God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Twenty-one, submitting to one another in the fear of, the, of God. Okay, thank you so much. So Paul begins or continues this discourse by saying, see then that you walk circumspectly. It's interesting that the New King James does not find a simpler word for this circumspectly because there's actually no straightforward translation for it. Some simpler translations will say, see that you walk in wisdom. But the word wisdom might actually be overused, right? Circumspectly, um, the original Greek or Latin word that is translated as circumspectly here is best translated work, work precisely or accurately. The idea of circumspect is to go around in a circle, like to hit every necessary point possible. Right? So Paul is saying to these believers that I want you to walk accurately, not as fools, but as wise. And that's, that challenges us a bit, right? Because Paul is insinuating here that it's possible to walk as a fool. Well, we know from the Psalms that the definition that the Bible gives to the fool is different from that that it gives to the simple person. So a simple person primarily lacks wisdom, lacks enlightenment, um, and perhaps doesn't know his left or her left from her right. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, a simple person is simple, right, in practical terms. But the fool, as used in the Psalms especially, represents one who is full of prideful ignorance. For example, you read the Bible say that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why does he say that there is no God? The reason he says there is no God is probably because he doesn't know that there is no God and he doesn't want to be enlightened about that topic. So. It's ignorance, but ignorance that is shrouded with some kind of pride. And then the question rises to us, how can a believer walk foolishly, right? If this is the definition that the Bible gives for, for who a fool is according to the Psalms, how is it that a believer can walk foolishly? How is it that a believer can walk foolishly? I think we, we actually touched on this a little last week. When we talked about walking in darkness. Yeah, I was about to say, I think we did something similar last week. We were talking <laughs> okay. about a believer ignoring and pretending like we don't know the truth and deviating from the truth, basically. So exactly. Foolishly by deviating. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's possible to ignore the light, right? Meaning that a believer has access to the word of God that is supposed to be like a, a lamp for your feet meaning for your daily decisions. 
and it's supposed to be a light for your path, meaning it's supposed to give you a vision for your life. It's possible to ignore <laughs> the light and then walk in circles, walk according to your own wisdom. What we said is also possible to turn off the light, actually, because Paul says that there are some people who knew the truth, but they turned the truth of God into unrighteousness. So it's possible that um, we cause, like Jesus said, we cause the light in us to become darkness by turning it off. So that even though God came to us and gave us express um, promises and even instructions about life, because of the, the strong desires of our human life, we lay aside those instructions, hoping that God will either change his mind about his, his, his standards or that he would overlook um, our, our failure to keep up to the requirements that God has placed upon our lives as believers. That's how to walk foolishly. And the reason why Paul is, is, um, is concerned about the possibility of walking foolishly is that there's something at stake, right? And if you read verse 16, it says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And the question then is, what is at stake for the believer? Because it raises the classic question, right? If we try to go back to the historical background of this letter, think of the first century world, which was governed by Rome. Like if you're the average believer who was probably maybe a slave, there's practically no hope of you breaking into the elite class. So in that sense, there's nothing to live for, right? There's no vision that is earthly that you can practically live for. There's no hope of having a future, even a family. I mean, you can work hard and try to create a future, but the options were pretty bleak and limited. And so in many ways, the only thing left was, was some kind of riotous living. And it's possible that, like we saw in the earlier verses, that one could justify such a position, right? After all, we are forgiven by Christ. There's nothing that you and I can do that the blood of Jesus cannot um, take care of. So what then is at stake? If it's not the eternal salvation of a person, what then is at stake here? What then is at stake in the life of a believer that, that demands that you and I do not walk foolishly, that demands that you and I do not turn off the light, you and I do not ignore the light? What's at stake in our lives? Think back on what we've studied in Ephesians so far, especially in Ephesians chapter 2, right? What's at stake in your life? Why does it matter what you do? And let me ask him. I mm -hmm. think with my own understanding of for this question, I feel like <laughs> you don't, as a believer, you won't be able to reach your full potential. Okay. As in, yeah, you won't be able to reach that. So there will always be limitations. Okay. Why is not doing the right things? Why is that a problem? It's a very big problem because I think at the end of the day, we don't really live up to God's expectations for us. We can't really show that light that we're supposed to be. Mm. Okay. You are, you are touching on the answer very closely. Thank you, Golda. Stephanie? If Golda was close, I'm probably really far off, but I'll probably say something like we would be enemies of God again because because that we would lose our standing with God and um, basically enemies of the cross 
we would lose the spirit, the work of the, the working of the spirit with us. We have a lot at stake. We have a lot to lose if we don't um, walk circumspectly. That's my thing. So if I to speak plainly, are you saying that if we don't walk circumspectly, we will lose our salvation? Well, we would become, well, we can lose our salvation if we don't walk circumspectly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Okay. I can say that we can because then we'll be enemies of God again. We'll be working, walking in the dark. We will lose our standing with Christ and with God. We will lose the Holy Spirit. There will be no difference between us and them that are of the world. So, so the question is, have you worked foolishly before? And of did, you, did you lose your salvation? Yeah, I even walked foolishly on Sunday, but I didn't <laughs> lose my salvation. But that's because I, I turned my back towards God. <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm just black I, I turned back to god i went back for repentance but there are some people that continuously walk okay okay thank you stephanie sorry for putting you on the spot but but the point i was trying to make is that salvation is not the kind of thing that you lose and gain you lose on sunday you gain on monday right even though the ups and downs in your conscience when you walk foolishly make it seem as though you are severed from god but that's pricking of your conscience according to scripture is actually a positive thing right it's supposed to lead you bible calls it godly sorrow it's supposed to lead you to the place of repentance and um, in fact jesus maybe i should help us clarify this issue again jesus said to peter that before you think of not forgiving your brother ensure that he has sinned against you 70 times seven times right so think about it if if that is the standard that Jesus gave sinful men to live by 490 times, which like the number doesn't make sense. It's, it practically means infinitely, as long as your brother is willing to be reasonable, you know, um, then you can imagine the standard that, that God places in our work with him. The Bible says as far as the East is from the West, so far has he separated our sins. Of course, that doesn't mean that a believer cannot lose their salvation, but it's not as easy. It's not an easy thing to happen as, as walking foolishly or making a mistake can, can be. And this is why it's so, so crucial to lay this balance, right? Because it's possible for, for people to preach the same thing I'm preaching and, and uh, come to the conclusion that it is a license to walk foolishly. But there's something at stake, right? And I, like I was saying, Golda touched on it. If we go back to Ephesians chapter two, right? We are told that God delivered us from the power of darkness, right? We were once dead in trespasses and he raised us up. He quickened us. He, um, he delivered us from the hopeless cycle of death. And we saw that he created us onto a purpose. Verse 10 says that we are his workmanship, we are his poetry, we are his work of art. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's very clear here that if you and I walk foolishly, the plan, the idea that God had when he birthed you, not only physically, but into his kingdom, that idea will be in serious jeopardy. And the implication of that is that if your light doesn't shine, men, men may never see God, right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. You know, it's interesting that God always emphasizes that he sees our hearts. But he's always clear that what men see is your good works, right? That they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. There is a harvest, friends, that God wants from your life. 
Now, this is so crucial because I remember back in Accra when I used to talk with some of our friends, you know, when we started School of Prayer, some people thought we were a bit extreme. They thought we're supposed to be technologists, you know, and why do we spend so much time praying and reading scripture? Um, and back then, I tried to explain to them that all of us are ministers in the new covenant because some of the arguments they were having was that, but we are all Christians. You know, why is your own, why is your own special? That this kind of labor or effort is for people that is for people like you, maybe, maybe you are called. <laughs> and one of my insistence in those days that was that all of us are called into some kind of ministry. Back then I didn't have the language to, to define it properly. So I didn't really always win those arguments. Anyway, the goal was never actually to win the arguments, but Paul makes it clear to us in 2 Corinthians chapter three, that we are ministers of the new covenant, right? Not of the letter, but of the spirit. It means that each of us has a ministry and that ministry is a ministry of our life. Your life is your altar. Your life is your sacrifice. Your life is your pulpit. Your life is your ministry. The virtues that you produce are your offering unto the Lord. It's possible that on the altar of your life, you can produce the offering of the Gentiles. Right? It's also possible that on the altar of your life, you can produce something that will not glorify God. If you say you don't find yourself in the fivefold, you are a politician or whatever you are, the primary ministry you have before God and before men is the ministry of life. We are called to dispense life. Paul made it very clear that, that the New Testament ministry is not a ministry of letters. You know, these days, preaching has been turned to public speaking in so many ways so that we don't even know how to differentiate a good public speaker from, from, from a real sermon because both of those things are the same. So it's all about what we can say. And as you can see in our generation, a lot of good things and deep things have been said. But the transformation is, is severely lacking because the kind of ministry that is effective is not the ministry of words, even though words are a strong container to communicate the life that we carry. But when you stand before a man or before a woman, it is your life, your very life, the life you live every day before God that counts. Jesus said, let your light so shine before me. Meaning that in that your dormitory, in that your classroom, right? In that your industry, your life can become a light. That's why you're an offspring of light. So that through you, those who walk through darkness can begin to see a glimmer of light. And you see, this was God's, workmanship this was god's piece of art god's poetry he he imagined it and he included you into that work before time began right and so if you and i walk foolishly we obliterate our, our chances of shining that light but paul says i want you to redeem the time because the days are evil right and it's important for us to maybe also try to understand what is what this means right what does it mean by the days are evil? You can approach this from the historical context or even from the practical context, but I'm more interested in the practical context, saying that the days are evil. So you, you need to order your life. You need to walk accurately so that you can redeem the time. What are the evil days? Are we living in evil days? And to an extent, I think the evil days 
um, pertains to where we have um, lots of conflicts, wars. Men shall be lovers of their own, of themselves. Okay. It shall be lavishness and all of that. Okay, so you've said a lot of things there. Let's just try to break it down, right? One of the things that marks the evil days, right, is a time of shaking, right? It feels like there's no solid foundation. You cannot rest your feet on something and be sure, right, that it is the it is a solid foundation. Banking systems can fail, right? The things that you labor for for so long can fail, right? So that's one. The evil days are the days of moral decadence, right? Um, it's it's like the days that Lot lived in when his righteous soul was grieved by the amount of iniquity that was um, being heaped up in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the evil day is, is also a day when the saints will be worn out. There is, there is a draining that comes with the evil days. So I don't think that you need to look too far to realize that we're in evil days. These evil days were inaugurated the moment Jesus ascended. Right. Since then, there has been persecution. Um, in fact, Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, verse 26, that at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, that the hearts of many people will fail them. You know, I stopped reading Twitter and all of these places regularly with any form of regularity because your heart can practically fail you. Satan can drain you out. I was talking with Indy Freke just before we started and she was talking about sitting in Lagos traffic for two hours or more going back home just from work. <laughs> I know that we have normalized it, but that's 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 an evil. It's an that's an evil day, because nobody who sits in such traffic for two hours or three hours is supposed to come out normal. You are supposed to come out drained, and it's possible that that time will be ticking, and you'll be waking up and hopping on the next bus and hopping out, and you'll just be going like that, and you. It's possible to become trapped in everything that's going on. For those of you, especially in Nigeria, who have been following the, the online space closely you've seen that very outrageous things have um, have have popped up in the news this week that everybody seems to have an opinion about and you know there's so much distraction that is in the environment so many things that can either call for your attention or call for your affection those are evil days the days where it is easy to lose to lose your connection with god the days where it is easy for you to stray from the path of intimacy, the place where it is easy for your first love to begin to grow cold. But Paul then says in verse 17, I don't want you to be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the antidote to the evil days <laughs> is that you and I must understand what the will of the Lord is. The antidote for, for walking in foolishness is that we must understand what the will of the Lord is. It's so important that we realize that if the Bible says understand, it means that this, this is going to be a process, right? This is not going to be automatic. God wants us to engage our will. He wants us to engage our mind. If you're going to understand something, then you're going to need to search it out. You're going to need to prove it. I think last week, we, Paul says, proving what the will of God is. You know, a lot of people want to understand the will of God, but the way we are going about it suggests that we expect it to actually just land upon us. But if we're going to understand, there needs to be concerted effort to understand. There needs to be a searching of the scriptures. There needs to be an investing of time. 
in prayer. However, when Paul says understanding what the will of God is, I believe that there's one particular aspect of the will of God that is universal to all Christians that he has in mind. Because verse 18 then says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. So the aspect of the will of God that Paul wants you to grasp if you're going to walk accurately, if you're going to walk circumspectly, if you're going to redeem the time in the evil days is that he wants you to know that God's desire is to fill you. Jesus wants to fill you. Right? We looked at this previously when we said in Ephesians chapter 4, when we said that the reason he ascended up on high and only gave gifts from ascension was so that he can fill all things. God wants to have a people that are saturated with him. And of course, to be filled with the spirit here um, is quite a broad thing. But one of the things that it can mean is that you are actually controlled by the spirit. Your atmosphere is ruled by the spirit because it, the, the imagery here of this Greek word that's translated field is not the imagery of like liquid filling up a bottle, for example. It's rather the idea is to be controlled by something. So you read in the, in the gospels that the Jews were filled with, with anger. And it's possible that a man can be filled with anger. You also read in the book of Acts concerning the apostles that the Jews were filled with envy. So it's possible to be filled with envy, right? Meaning to be ruled by envy, to be controlled by it. It's possible to be controlled by the need for revenge. You know, it's possible to be controlled by hurt. It's possible to be controlled by lust, by, by an inordinate desire. And all of those things that are battling to control your life are going to ensure that the divine purpose for which God separated you never comes to pass. So you see, Satan himself wants to fill you <laughs> also. He wants you to be preoccupied with yourself, with other people, with social media, with football, with movies, anything but the spirit. But you see, the antidote to the evil days, if you're going to withstand the evil days, you would have to learn how to be filled with the spirit. And Paul, contrast this experience of being filled with the spirit with being drunk with wine. The first thing I want to say here is that to understand this scripture, we need to understand its historical context because the word wine is quite <laughs> relevant for us Pentecostals in Nigeria, for example, right? Because people have used this scripture to encourage people that, hey, you know what, you can drink wine, but just don't get drunk. Um, and I'm not here to preach against anybody who thinks that they need to drink wine. Um, but I don't drink it anyway. And when I say wine, I mean um, alcoholic. And the scripture, at least the New Testament, doesn't expressly forbid that you drink wine. No, it doesn't. But you know what I always say about these issues, that whatever gray areas that exist in Christianity, they are gray, for, they are gray at a universal or generic level but they're not gray at a specific level. If the thing cannot be deciphered for all believers, God has an idea for you personally. And it's important for you to understand personally what the will of God is concerning that matter. But the real spirit of this scripture is in the historical background, which is what I hinted at earlier, which is that this Ephesus is a Greek city dominated by the Roman Empire. And part of the, part of the culture, right, in these empires amongst the people that 
you can say didn't have much to look forward to and even those who had was to engage in drunkenness you know and wine is the kind of thing that gives you joy sort of you know joy in in in, in quotes it gives you some kind of release you know that makes you forget that you're under oppression forget that you know life is life is it's a mess you know life is a bit hard to to take or to swallow sometimes it's supposed to give you some kind of joy um, and there was this culture among the gentiles right among the non-christians of just engaging in this desire engaging in this abuse if you like of wine and that's where the context of verse 19 actually comes out because <laughs> the primary way that you want that you know if somebody's drunk is when they open their mouth right and so when they opened their mouth in ancient ephesus and in the roman empire what came out was all kinds of jesting, which Paul had referred to earlier in chapter five. Jesting, cursing, coerced talking, the kind of talk that stirs up the desires of the old man. But Paul is saying to this church and to us that I don't want you to be drunk with wine. The days are evil, the time is short. We need to redeem it. There is work for us, for you and I to do. There is a, there's a great destiny for you to fulfill. Many are sitting in darkness, waiting for your light to shine. So. I don't want you to convince yourself that it doesn't matter what you do now that you're saved. You can hang out with the wine babas, babblers, as it were. But I want you to be saturated with God. I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And the evidence, the proof, after you are filled with the Spirit, you are going to realize that, you, that your speech will change. You begin to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Permit me to combine those three things and say you'll be filled with joy. What Paul is saying is that when you are filled with the spirit, the atmosphere life around your life changes, right? Because what he's saying, what he's not saying is that you should start singing the whole day <laughs> or that you should just change your, your language to Christianese and be speaking it all around in the name of being filled with the spirit because that's what a lot of us have turned it into. So, that's not the spirit of what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying is that when you are filled with the spirit, there's going to be an overflow of joy. And that joy will find itself, will express itself through your songs. And by spiritual songs, these are songs that you were not thought, songs that, were not, that are not written down somewhere, songs that may not even have a logical flow, but songs that you picked up when you journeyed with God in the spirit. I don't know. Have you woken up on one weekend and said, you know what, I have time this weekend. I just want to enjoy the Holy Spirit. And when you go on that journey, he leaves a song on your soul, a song that doesn't exist anywhere, but it, it just brings ventilation to your soul when you sing it. So the same way that the one who is drunk with wine can forget his problems <laughs> and can have a kind of release and freedom to be all that he cannot be when he's sober. So also, the one who is drunk in the spirit can have the same liberty. But this time, the liberty to be self-controlled, actually. But also the liberty to, to do the things that you will not do if you're not filled with the spirit. Just in case, I wish we were a physical group would have been going out for evangelism every now and then. And you realize how scary it can be, you know, to go out to talk to very random strangers about the gospel. But if you are filled with the spirit, if you are filled with the spirit, the overflow is easy. 
Paul says singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And another after effect, right, of being filled with the Spirit is that there will be thanksgiving. Notice he says, giving thanks always, always for all things. So this is both about time and matter, right? Giving thanks always. Just in case you notice that bitterness has entered your soul or just uh, not even bitterness, perhaps, perhaps despondency because of something that didn't work out or because of you are just disoriented. Each of us comes to that place regularly, actually, where life just for some moments doesn't seem to add up correctly. Yes, that's time to be filled with the spirit. You know, just in case you, you, you find yourself in Lagos traffic that is trying to drain the life out of your soul for three hours, that's time to convert it to a time of being filled with the spirit. And, and the proof that you're filled with the spirit is that you'll be giving thanks always for all things. So when bad news comes, you give thanks and the Holy Spirit begins to fill you. You see, the proof of being filled with the Spirit is also the way you sustain being filled with the Spirit. So even though speaking to yourselves in Psalms and hymns is, is the overflow, the after effect of being filled with the Spirit, it is also a channel of continually being filled with the Spirit. Oh, I miss those days when I could just pick up the phone and call somebody and we just talk scripture. We just talk scripture. It's not that we sat down to do Bible study but we are speaking to one another. Oh, the joy and the refreshing that comes out from those moments. Right. And the final proof that you are filled with the Spirit is that you submit one another in the fear of the Lord. Or you can say for Christ's sake, for Jesus', for Jesus sake, you submit one to another. You know, our classic Pentecostal and charismatic pictures of being filled with the Spirit is that it makes us it makes us giant. It makes us dominant. It makes us want to, you know, grab the mic <laughs> and be on stage and be the ones to uh, minister to others and tell others what to do. But Paul says actually that um, the proof of being filled with the Spirit, one of the organic experiences you're going to have is the experience of letting go of your pride, of your rights, of your ego in the fear of the Lord to one another. But we're going to touch on this shortly. But I know I've said a lot here. Um, any anything that that popped up to you as, as I was talking, anything that stayed with you, any comments or questions so far? Okay, so I take that that we are still digesting most of it, right? So now we need to. Okay, Golda. No, I was concurring that we're still digesting. That's our cry. Okay. Yes. It's important that we walk circumspectly, that we redeem the time, that we buy back the time. And Jesus wants to fill us. He wants to fill us. We don't really have time to press what it means to be filled, because if you go to the book of Acts, you're going to realize that filled is a recurring experience of the believers. Now, being filled with the Spirit is different from being baptized in the Spirit. Being baptized in the Spirit is a once and for all experience, right? But being filled with the Spirit is supposed to be an ongoing experience. In fact, um, filled there is actually not used in the passive verse. It's used in the active voice, right? It means be continuously filled with the Spirit. We said that 
the basis upon which we can imitate God is that is his life in us. And the life of God, there is a sense in which we are baptized once and for all into that life. But there's another sense in which we are filled in new measures with that life. So just in case God has given you a command or an instruction that is proving impossible to execute, maybe you should lay the command aside for a moment and, and receive life. Be filled with the spirit. Um, how can you be filled with the spirit? I just feel like we should press this a bit more. You know, um, we've seen some of the organic effects, right, of being filled with the spirit, which is that your speech. And we have also said that your that these organic effects are not just ways, are not just the after effects of being filled with the spirit, but they are also ways that you can continue to be filled with the spirit. But what's your experience? Or what's your thoughts on that? How can you be filled with the spirit? Because this is your doorway to walking in wisdom, right? This is your doorway to walking accurately. But you are filled with the spirit. This is your doorway to understanding what the will of the Lord is. Golda? I think I think one of the ways and being filled with the spirit is I begin to reflect Christ to an extent, for example, the fruits of the spirit. So there are certain restraints that, let me, let me feel down, there are certain restraints that are placed on you because certain things you will no longer be comfortable doing them or certain things you can't even do them because there's like a consciousness, there's an awareness in you that springs forth anytime those things come around you and all of that. So the way to be filled with the Spirit is to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Is that what you say? That's, that's one way that it begins to manifest. Okay. But if, you, but if you've looked at how we've um, studied this chapter in particular, you'll notice that the fruit of the Spirit cannot happen until you're actually filled with the Spirit. And because... Mm -hmm. no, yeah, because the fruit of the Spirit is not something that you can produce by yourself. This is what we talked about when we talked about imitating Christ. Right? That there is a life in you and you need to let the power, the virtues of that life to manifest. Right? You need to let the inner life dominate the outer life. And being filled with the spirit is one of the ways that that life can bubble up to the surface and begin to manifest itself. Okay, so you want to know exactly how we can be filled with the Spirit. That's the question. Yes, yes. Okay, so the first step, normal, be born again. Okay. So that's the starting point. Then, baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism of water. So after that, then, the Holy Spirit takes over from there. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to point out, right, that... Um, in addition to what you've said, it's important that we speak. Can I say something? Okay. Yes, Nancy, is that you? Or Ene? No, it's Ene. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay, I, I was just thinking about it now, and I think we can we can be filled with the Spirit by, by yielding to the Holy Spirit, even though each and every one of us, like the Bible says, we are given a measure of the Spirit. But I think that measure that is given to us 
can either multiply or like um, find better expression in us by how much we yield to the spirit of God within us. Okay. And how do you yield to the spirit of God? What, what I'm trying to drive us at is that there is a very active role, right? Or if you like, proactive role that you can play in being drunk or filled with the spirit. And filled here is not by measures, like we said. Filled here more accurately means to be controlled, to be moved by the spirit, as it were. Let's say there's an active role that you and I have to play, right? Which is the, which is the role of speaking. The role of speaking. Um, and the gift that God has given us to engage this life of God that is in us is the gift of tongues. You can be filled with the Spirit by speaking to the Spirit. You can be filled with the Spirit by speaking to one another. So the gift of tongues by which we speak to the Holy Ghost is a primary channel of being filled with Him. And the gift of fellowship by which we can exchange words of life with each other is another important channel by which we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? So I want us to, to make these two things our practices, right? Learn how to quieten your heart and quieten your environment, or like Jesus said, shut the door and speak to the Holy Ghost until he anoints you. Speak to the Holy Ghost until you literally begin to cry, <laughs> And also make it a practice of speaking to one another in spiritual terms. You know, not just like weigh your conversations. How, many, how much percentage of it is about things that are passing away and how much percentage of it is about spiritual things. That's one way to stay filled. None of us can stay filled actually outside the context of community. At some point, we're going to need community to stay filled. Um, but let's not press this because of our time. Let's look at the topic of submission as we close for tonight. Um, can you read for us, Koda, from 22 to 33? Okay, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The 233. Okay, sorry. Um, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and perishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thank you very much. So it's as though Paul makes a sudden switch from talking about submitting to one another 
and he moves the conversation into the family context, right? Because this is the primary um, location where his where his um, audience will find themselves mostly, and that location is in the family context. And for many of us, when it comes to shining the light of God, right? When it comes to walking with wisdom, the the home, the family, is the primary place where we need to be careful to get it right. If we do not get it right in the home, everything else crumbles around us and we, even within us. And, and the family setup is the kind of context that it's very difficult to escape from, especially as a child, for example. And um, we've seen what has been in the news, for example, for the past one week in Nigeria. Um, if we take children, for example, right? If you're born into a family, I mean, you can leave the house, you can go somewhere else, but a big part of who you are um, biologically and um, even physiologically and psychologically is forged in the family. And so it's important if we're going to have stable lives, if our light is going to shine to ensure that our wisdom, our ability to walk accurately first manifests itself in the family. Paul concluded previously by saying that we need to submit one to another in the fear of God. Right, because conflict is a natural consequence of coming in touch with people. All of us are fallen creatures who have a sense of ego. And when I say a sense of ego, I simply mean a sense of self. We are naturally self-centered. Um, and so it's not possible that you can walk in, in love or walk in peace with someone if you don't allow them influence you to an extent, right? And that's what it means to submit one to another. It means that I'm going to need to accept certain level of influence from you and vice versa. And what that means is I need to accept feedback from you. I need to accept correction from you. I need to accept praise from you, right? I need to accept even rejection. If, if I want something and you tell me no, I need to be able to take that with grace and with good grace. Submitting to one another because of Christ, for Christ's sake. And submitting to one another um, has with it the tone of, of letting go of your rights, because we're going to see shortly that there's a clear separation in scripture between what the Bible considers the right of the man and the woman in marriage. But each party must begin by learning to let go of their rights, you know, um, so that peace and love can reign in a particular relationship. I'm watching our time. There's so much to say about this, but I wouldn't press too much on this topic, except to say that before we touch the hot topic of marriage and submission and all of that, it's important to realize that every believer has to submit. It doesn't matter if you are male or if you are female, right? Or if you are young or if you're old, if you are a father or if you are a child, all of us are called to submit. And just in case, you look around your life and you don't see yourself submitting, right? In any context, you don't see yourself submitting to any sort of authority. Of course, the ultimate authority, like Paul mentions shortly, is Christ. But physically, in our physical environment, we have um, people that God places around us that are going to be above us in one sense or the other, whether or not we think they deserve it or whether or not we think we're better than them and we are called to submit. This is part of how to work accurately. And if you don't understand this, 
you're going to end up with a lot of problematic relationships. There are several relationships where you feel like you should be the boss, but you find out that you're not the boss. And the wisdom for those situations is to submit. And Paul now brings it into the family because like we said earlier, this is where the make or break of a lot of people's Christianity happens. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's, it's interesting here that he only has two verses <laughs> for wives, but has several verses for husbands. But somehow we have made the two verses that are addressed to wives, the, the epicenter of this verse of scripture and a bone of contention for many people. Anyway, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. So Paul says that I want you to walk accurately. Now, there are many ways that you can do marriage. And maybe someone can say, oh, I'm doing my marriage like this is working for me. Or like that is, is working for me. But the accurate way to do it, <laughs> if you understand the will of God, is that there, you need to recognize the principle of headship. That principle of headship, the reason why it exists in marriage, in this, according to Paul in this discourse, is because headship itself exists in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that you and I are so eagerly awaiting and looking forward to, the kingdom that was inaugurated by the death of Christ. In that kingdom, there is headship. Christ himself submits to the Father, you know, um, even though he's equal with the Father. He submits to the father. So headship begins. There is, there, is, there, is, there is ranking and authority in the realm of the spirit and in the kingdom of God, there is order. God, God has lines of reporting as it were in the kingdom. And headship does not mean preference. Headship is, is not so much a privilege as it is a responsibility, right? It is a position of favor that is granted to, to a person. And the person's gender is not the thing that grants them that, that um, um, positional privilege. But it's a position of privilege that comes with great responsibility. So in the Godhead, um, Christ submits to the Father out of honor for the Father. And he says, wives, I want you to submit to your own husbands. Um, and he, he wants Christ to be the center of this submission. He says, as to the Lord, right? And so it means that a wife is, is supposed to submit to her husband because of the Lord, essentially. I'm doing it not because of him, as it were, but because of the Lord, because the Lord is our Lord. And even though in this um, temporary arrangement of marriage, I'm the one who's submitting, it's not necessarily going to be like that in eternity. And eternity is much longer than time because in eternity, like we know, there's no, there's no marriage. You know, there's no husband, there's no wife, there's no male, there's no female. Um, and it says that the reason I want to submit is because the husband is the head. So this is a position of privilege that God has given the male. I'm trying to be very slow and deliberate in how I say this because we live in a generation where this kind of teaching is considered to be all of these fancy words that we, that our social generation has come up with, right? Um, it's patriarchy and all of these actually good words that have been turned on their head. 
but this is the order of scripture. If your if your marriage relationship is going to succeed, there's going to be a, need to be a healthy dose of this um, arrangement in it. Um, and verse twenty four says, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own own husbands in everything. Subject does not mean to be inferior, but subject means here is using the sense of simply submit, right? Means that you defer authority to whom authority has been invested in. So there are two equal people, but both people are not 100% equally leading the relationship because at the end of the day, God is going to hold one person responsible for the final decisions that were taken. And that one person is the man. Again, we don't have time to press that, but this began all the way in the Garden of Eden. So if, if God is going to hold the man responsible, the wife is supposed to try to make that responsibility easier rather than making it more painful and more difficult to fulfill. And then he turns to husbands and he says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So he tells them to do the impossible, right? I want you to be like Christ. So there is a lot of dying that needs to happen in the man for this, for this to come to pass. Now, on, now look at what's going on here. Even though he has said for wives to submit to their, to their husbands, he's saying that the way Christ loved the church is that he gave himself for her. I know that this does not fit in 100%, but in a sense, you can say that Christ humbled himself and submits himself to the church. In a sense, do you realize how available Christ is for us? There are, there are many things that we ask of God that is not the perfect will of God for us, but that he still gives us because of his love for us. Right? And that love sometimes allows him to help us learn the hard way. Um, but there's a willingness in Christ to lay aside the privileges of his headship and to commune with us, you know, you don't realize how much of a privilege it is that you can pray and the Father can hear you. That you can say, I come in the name of Jesus and I want this thing to happen. And the Father grants that wish. All of this to say that in loving your wife as a husband, you need to be willing to, let me try to find the right expression for this. And you need to be willing to accept influence. You know, there are many times that your wife will be correct and you'll be wrong. And <laughs> if you're going to love like Christ, you need to show that your security is not in your position, but your security is in who you are in Christ. And you're able to accept that with your, your, your thinking about this matter is actually the correct one. And we're going to go with it. Because if you don't do that, you're going to set up a block in your home. It's important to also see that he gave himself. He gave himself. He gave, gave himself. So a practical way that a husband is supposed to demonstrate love for his wife is by giving, by giving. Giving so much so that you give yourself. Everything that the husband has is supposed to be poured into the family first. It is not in the will of God for any man to, <laughs> to treat his family second financially. Such a house is going to have very deep-seated problems and God himself will not intervene because 
what is being built is not the image of, of God. It's not the pattern of heaven. The Bible says that Christ gave himself for the church. And so the, man, the man's wealth, the man's privileges are supposed to be given because in doing that, he can portray accurately what it means to be a head, which is what Christ is. He can put Christ on display, right? Part of why society is broken is because we don't have Christ as men in homes. Now, I hope you also understand that what I'm saying here is not that a man should allow himself to be controlled by his wife. Part of why Paul began with the women is that there's always going to be that tendency to control, right? It's normal if you're, if you're the one who is not the final arbiter, not the final decision taker, then you're going to try to find other ways to have your way, which is equal to control. Um, and God takes that very seriously because part of the problems that God had with Adam was that he listened to his wife. And so if you are going to lead like Christ, there are times not to listen to your wife. The same way Job did not listen to his wife and curse God, even though Satan had said to God, flesh for flesh, he cannot survive this temptation. You know, um, there was a time Abraham listened to his wife <laughs> and we're still dealing with the outcome to today. It's very important to know that if God invests headship in a particular person, by virtue of that privilege, if you like, the person is exposed to divine visitations from God not because they are more spiritual, but just because of their positional advantage. It's God who, in, who bestows them with that favor. And so it must be clear that even though you defer to your wife for many things, that you are not allowing yourself to be controlled by her. If not, Satan will find a loophole to bring, to wreak havoc in your family. That's why he says in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, there is a ministry of teaching that God gives to every head. It is such a, a great responsibility, right? That you are supposed to achieve um, a cleansing, a daily cleansing of the word, of, of water by the word. You're supposed to be accurate with the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle and that she should be holy without blemish. And it tells us in verse 28 that husbands ought to love their own wives. It's so important to see this because again, people have taken this part of scripture to the very extreme to, to indicate that there is a certain male preference that dominates scripture. And this is one of the justifications for that. But what is what Paul is dealing with here is working accurately in the family. This is purely governmental as it relates to the family so the man who is head of his home <laughs> can actually be under his wife at work and heaven has no qualms about that because the scope of his governmental authority is in the home right Mordecai had spiritual headship over esther even though esther was literally the one paying the salary essentially and because headship is not the same actually as leadership and um, um, headship or leadership, like neither of them is male or female. It's a, it's a position of favor that God bestows upon a person by God's own sovereignty. And if we're going to walk accurately, we need to learn how to, how to 
exist within the context of headship and submission in the family. That is the template that will guarantee that the presence of God will rest in what we are building. Right? In 32, Paul says that this is a great mystery. And what he's saying to you by saying this is a great mystery and that he's speaking concerning Christ and the church is that the relationship that you and I have with the Godhead, with, with Christ, is actually based on this principle of headship and submission. And unlike what we see today, none of it is forced, right? Christ doesn't impose his headship on you. You can deny Christ today and he doesn't force his way on you. Um, he doesn't impose his government upon you. And you see, your submission is also something that you give willingly when you recognize the love that Christ has for you. And, and the only way that the world is going to see that this is what God has in mind is through the example of family. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects the husband. Okay, because of our time, we're going to stop here for tonight. Um, this talk on um, headship and submission was quite a lot, but I would like to hear your thoughts, any questions or feedback before we close. Um, sorry, can I just say something? Mm -hmm. I mean, on Sunday when I heard about the news from Nigeria, I was all over the place, like overly um, emotional. I was very, very upset about the whole thing. And then I just, you know, was thinking about it and I know that maybe it was not my thoughts about I was drifting towards that side chat, like saying, mm, at the end, is it that women are, are the ones that lose out? Because when you talk about women submit, that's the one we hear most of the time, like you said. But husband, love your wives. I think maybe the word love has been used and abused and nobody even knows what love is anymore. And it's like, okay, so that love thing that the bible keeps stress stressed for husbands i just feel like in reality it's it's like very abstract but the submission part that's easy you just submit everything but the love part is like how do you even love you know and so i, I mean on sunday mm. i was just lost like why did this happen and i just so I think this thing is timely, but still is sounding very abstract to me because I, I don't know, maybe experience or something, but yeah, I'll just stop there. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we said previously that the love of God is a governmental system. It's, it's supposed to constrain a man. And if we don't teach the love of God, because the way of Christ has to be learned, he has to be taught, he has to be understood. We don't assume that a carnal man gets born again and comes to church and all is okay, right? Such a man needs to be instructed. There's a government of love that if it captures your heart, it's supposed to constrain you, right? It's supposed to, it's supposed to compel you, it's supposed to put you on a different trajectory. And that's the kind of affection that God says that a man should have <clears throat> for his wife. And the center of this kind of affection is Christ. Because if Christ is not formed fully in such a man's heart, he's going, to, he's going to unleash his insecurities. He's going to unleash his anger on his wife. And of course, we must also be very clear that this is 
not one-way traffic also it's vice versa there there are abusive relationships that um um women which has which is in which is the minority that women engage in where they subdue and overpower and even sometimes lead to cause the death of their husbands just because of the fact that it's a relationship that they can dominate um, what we're dealing with is not a male's a male syndrome i hope you can see or a female syndrome predominantly but a human problem and that's why paul says walk wisely work wisely the family is the place where you can either make it or might so when you find yourself in a family context work wisely work wisely um i don't want us to touch on the issue maybe we can have another call where we talk about it because we're probably not going to be able to fit it into any reasonable amount of time but i'll just say that um if you're if you're here and you're still at the place where you still have the opportunity or the privilege to decide who you get married to. Um, it's very important that you take that decision very seriously and that you submit that decision to the highest standard possible. Um, ensure that you know the government that controls a man. Ensure that you know the government that controls a woman. It has nothing to do with how many hours they pray in tongues. It has nothing to do with what church they go to. It has nothing to do with any of that. Like we said last week, if the government within is not adjusted, the old man will remain the old man. And so you might meet, God might bring someone your way that is that does not tick your spiritual high boxes. Right? It does not fast like you or pray like you, but check for the government that rules their life. If the person passes the test of government, I can assure you every other thing else can follow. But if the person fails the test of the government that runs their life, Everything you're seeing is a mirage and you cannot build a strong foundation upon it. So you see that essentially what Paul is saying is that you need to be filled with the spirit for you to even walk in your family. You need to be saturated for you to walk wisely because if you're not saturated and you, and you move in the flesh, Satan will leave a dent on you that will tarnish the name of God, that will cause the light that God intended for you to shine to become darkness and the prayer and the cry of my heart for all of us is that our light will not be deemed our light will shine brilliantly that in every circumstance in every situation the life of god in us will rise and will shine brightly and i pray for you and for myself that we would always be filled always be filled always be filled Yes, always be filled that our decisions will not make sense to the natural man, but they will make a difference. They will make an impact where it matters. In the mighty name of Jesus.